0: Hear God's word. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. for We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather... Offer yourself to God, as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Well, thanks be to God for His Word, and let's pray and ask God for His help this morning. Father, you have brought us all together, both here and online, to, to praise you in song to pray in Christ's name, and to let you teach us by your Spirit from your Word. For we believe, God, that when your Word is truly taught, then your voice is truly heard. And that is what we all need. And so, God, to that end, your help is needed more than what we can quantify in our minds. And therefore, we draw all of our strength, all of it right now, from you and you alone. As your grace abounds over us, teaching us, God, these deep, profound truths of the verses that we've read, that we might leave here praising your name and exalting in the free grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whose sake we ask these things. Amen. A long time ago, Christian History had a wonderful article. The title was God's Chemo for My Cancered Soul. It was about dealing with sin. Listen to what the writer says. They call it the victorious, spirit-filled life. You got into it, they said, by total surrender to Jesus Christ. They assume that no one does as that conversion. And then looking to him, whenever you felt sinful impulses stirring, you would then, by his spirit, douse the desire, and quiet peace and joyful satisfaction would be your portion once again, as described by the gifted preacher under whom I sat. It sounded wonderful but I could not make it work. I was a new convert in my late teens. I had kept Christ at bay for too long and was trying to make up for lost time. Like any other introverted adolescent, I was a loner. My emotional life was all over the place and I was essentially a mixed up kid. I heard the formula as a way of transcending my less than satisfying inner state and labored to follow the instructions, but the mad bad urges still raged. And the quiet peace did not come. What was wrong? I concluded that my surrender could not have been total, and I scoured my inside to find out what more I could consecrate. Harry Ironside, sometime preacher at Moody Church in Chicago, drove himself into a nervous breakdown doing this. And I might as well have gone the same way. But by chance, I came upon a, a, a series of sermons from Romans 6 and 7, stitched by the man John Owen. And the title of it was The Mortification of Sin and Believers. And here was God's chemo for my cancered soul. Reaching across three centuries, Owen showed me Romans 6 and 7. And so he showed me my insight. He showed me my real heart as no one has ever done before. Sin, he told me is a blind, anti-God, egocentric energy in the fallen human spiritual system, ever formenting self-centered, and self-deceiving desires, ambitions, purposes, plans, attitudes, and behaviors. Now that I was a regenerate believer, born again, a new crea- creation in Christ, sin that formerly dominated me had been dethroned, but it was not yet destroyed. It was always marauding within me all the time, bringing back sinful desires that I hoped I had seen the last of, and twisting my new desires for God and godliness out of shape so that they become pride-perverted too. Owen said, "This is important. A lifelong battle with indwelling sin is what we need to expect." Now, the last time we were together. We made the point that the chapter break between chapters 5 and 6 was not put in there by Paul. And so it did not mean that Paul was bringing us into like a brand new section untied to what he had previously said so far. In fact, far from it. Because of this, we said that the the jump down into chapter 6, if we would just jump into 6 in isolation... And ignoring what was said before chapter 6, ignoring what was said after chapter 6, and ignoring the heartbeat of the letter that the righteous live by faith, faith in the righteousness of God, if you would, imputed righteousness of Christ, if we miss that, we will miss and we will mangle up what Paul was saying here in Romans, which would have consequences. It would have consequences not only for us, but for everybody in our circle of uh, of, uh Influence, we'll say. Indeed, in a moment, we're going to see that all of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 will be an explanation. Now, listen carefully, of the final two verses of chapter 5. In fact, if your Bible is open, you'll see this. So, this is not a new section. And if you ask the question, well, how do you know that? The answer would be because of the very words that we have written before us in chapter 6. So, please, if you would, have a look down in your Bibles. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Okay? What shall we say about what, Paul? Well, about what he's been saying in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Okay, how do we know that? Again, answer, verse 1. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? A question which is directly tied to these final two verses in chapter 5. So listen, after giving us a right understanding of God's law... That God's law does not increase righteousness, it actually decreases it. And after giving the overwhelming certainty of the necessity of God's grace abounding over sin, that's verse 20b and verse 21, that the Christian is under the reign of grace. After saying all that, and by the way, all that is meant to give security to the Christian, eternal security, certainty, because it's all based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And so the gospel says, thank God it says, stop trying to earn God's blessing and earn God's favor and earn God's love and your security through your obedience. It's completely unnecessary. Rather, just repent and rely on each as a way of life, on the grace of God given through the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. So so don't try to adorn yourself with good works to, to make you feel better with God. Because, for the Christian... There is no problem between you and God at all. In Christ, we are captivatingly beautiful to our Father in heaven. Because when he sees us, he always sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Which means nothing can separate you from his love. That's Romans 8. Nothing. Not even your sin. Because that's been dealt with. So after giving us all that, Paul is saying, and he's going to say, that if a person is justified by God, through Jesus Christ. They're going to be sanctified by God through Jesus Christ. And one day they're going to be glorified, right? New body, perfect, forever, and um, infinite by God through Christ. All of it through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as chapter 6 will tell us. Now, in light of that, Paul anticipates the question. Okay, and here's the question. It's verse 1. Does the message of salvation by grace alone, that, that grace is abounding over your sin, Does that lead you to stay unchanged morally, right? So is it just like grace sent away? And please notice, in fact, you you won't see this unless your Bible's open, that Paul is so keen on answering this question that he wrote down in verse 1 of chapter 6 that he's going to give it to us three more times in chapter 6 and 7 to drive us deeper into the multi-sided, beautiful, super, hyper, abundant grace of God in the gospel. So that we can understand sin in law and grace. So look at chapter 6, verse 15. Same question. What then? Shall we sin because we're no longer under law but under grace? Chapter 7, verse 7. Again, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Again, chapter 7, verse 13. Did that which is good, that's commandments, God's law, then become death to me? So I hope you see the point. Three times he answers, he's going to ask the same question that he asked in verse one, and he's going to take all of chapter six and take all of chapter seven to explain the last two verses of chapter five. Namely, the law was added not to increase righteousness, but to increase, expose unrighteousness. That's what it says, chapter five, verse 20. The trespass might increase. But not to worry, verse 20b and verse 21, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So that, verse 21 of chapter 5, so that grace reigns for the Christian. Because no matter, and listen carefully, no matter how far we excel in Christian graces, we will never be in the position when the grace of God will not need to abound in our lives. That's why Paul wrote that. So I want you to listen carefully. This whole section is primarily about defending and explaining justification and the great need of justification and not just talking about sanctification. Sanctification is there. It's there. We won't be able to escape it, but it's tied tight to justification so that they are not separate stages in salvation. So step one, justification. Step two, sanctification. They, they are different marks of the un. Broken continuum of the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Because in the gospel, God declares us righteous and God makes us righteous in order that we will be stunned of just how how gracious the God that we serve is. And, loved ones, I want you to think with me Is is it not the gospel of received righteousness, which is right? as opposed to, to earn righteousness, which is wrong, is so radical. Because earned righteousness is the way of every other religion in the world. And so we need to recognize how dangerous that, that justification might sound to the do-gooders of the world who, being good, is really their true God. Be good, that's my God. But there's nothing like the gospel in the world. It is unique among religions, it is unique among philosophies in the whole world, which means mere humans could not conceive of this salvation plan as it's given to us in Romans. We couldn't make this up. God had to do it. And all of it had to come, if you would, from outside of it. And so just think with me for a moment. All the big points which make the gospel go and make the gospel good are so otherworldly, they're hard to wrap our minds around. For example, wrap your mind around the virgin birth. We need that in the gospel. Explain that, I mean, the details of it. It's hard to. How about being given the righteousness of Jesus, imputed? How do you explain that? How do you explain this? Christ fully human and Christ fully God at the same time. How do you explain the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need that in the gospel. How do you explain that the son has to die, but the son is God? So how does God God die in the person of his son? Stay dead three days for real. And that's how God deals with our sin. You see? So the gospel is all outside of it. It has to be explained to us. And of course, it has to be re-explained and re-explained to us. That's why we say here a whole lot that when you preach the Bible verse by verse, you're going to preach the gospel Sunday by Sunday. Now, before we move to our first edi- heading, I want you to ask yourself this question, okay? You have a friend, or maybe a spouse, you have a child, or may- maybe a colleague, and they're Christian, and they come up to you, and they tell you, I am struggling with a certain sin, <laughs> and it is just overwhelming me. It's killing me, and they want your help. What would you do? Now I want you to think. And I want you to be honest. What what would you do? And would you take them to Romans 6 and to this section to give them aid? You you know the party line, right? I mean, the the normal things about praying and reading. (laughs) Would you take them to Romans 6? Would it be what Paul, under God, is doing here? Because he gives no techniques on how to be sanctified. He says nothing about how not to sin but he does give deep theology to drive us deeper into the gospel. He takes us to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in chapter 6 and to tell us that we are not under the reign of sin, and he keeps tying us tighter and tighter to the person and work of Jesus Christ in chapter 6 and in chapter 7. You see, when you have shallow thoughts of sin, that's going to lead to lead us to have shallow thoughts of God and shallow thoughts of our salvation, and we're going to be ignorant to the depth and the depravity of our sin, and therefore the beauty of Jesus Christ. And what you're going to do is you're going to reduce Jesus. So Jesus is going to be just the life coach. So Jesus helped good people that are kind of okay to be great. So he died so that we could have our full potential, meet, you know, finances, family, future, all squared away. Or we're going to have the housekeeper Jesus. We're not perfect, and we'll, we'll say that, but we're not evil. So we need Jesus just to keep cleaning our messes up. When you go into Romans 6 and 7, you need the Savior Jesus. You need to know that you were dead, that you couldn't make yourself alive, and you need his righteousness forever and ever and ever and ever. And so the larger picture here in 6 and 7, if you, if you kind of pull back the, 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 the camera lens, if you would, Paul is, 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 is going To help us see things as they are. And it's not that Paul is going to help us sin less. I mean, it was only one trespass that brought this mess into the world anyway. But he's going to humble us. And he's going to show us, why would you ever sin at all? But you still do. He's going to be honest enough to say this. In order that in the gospel, the grace of God will abound. And our only boast will be in Jesus Christ. That's good news. That's good news. First point then, let's test our gospel. Now, we said that Paul, under God, has explained justification. And he knows the question's going to come. Again, verse 1. Okay, Paul, so you say we're saved by grace and not a good life, good works. All right, fine. However, will not that message. You just keep preaching that, Paul. Isn't that going to leave us morally unchanged? Isn't that going to say, you know, we're not going to have really any fight to fight indwelling sin? Won't that message just leave the door wide open to sin away and people will think, you know, no biggie. Grace is going to keep covering me. So, Paul, aren't you soft on sin? Because what we need, I mean, this is what they say, we need some law. We need some moral teaching. And then if we do that, there's going to be Holy Joes all over the place. <laughs> now. Paul's longer answer to that question is in verses 2 through 10. But the short answer is in in verse 1. Do you see it there? What does he say to that? He goes, by no means. In other words, are you serious? How can you say what you just said in the beginning of verse 1? No way. And verse 1 in the Greek is written in the emphatic, which means this is the strongest expression of denial, which can be used in the Greek language. So if you could hear Paul's voice, Paul would be shouting, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> right? "Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase?" "Are you crazy?" That's what he would say. In fact, some English translation says, "God forbid that you say that." And what he's saying is is that if you really understood the dynamic of the gospel, the message of the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ who is the gospel, it would be really hard for you to come to that conclusion. So, let's just test our gospel. And if we do that, first we're going to realize that when you read our Bibles and you come to see that the true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, imputed righteousness alone for our acceptance with God, that's going to leave the door wide open for the possibility of the charge of verse 1 in the beginning. We're being too soft on sin. You're making it too easy to be a Christian. And so, Paul, again, you're not teaching morality enough. You, you need to pick it up. Because if, and this is what they say, if we taught more morality, then we would be in far better shape than we are now. However, look at your Bibles. What does Romans 5.20 say? And, and in the future, we're going to learn what Romans 7 say. That Romans 5.20 and Romans 7 puts that morality thing to rest. If our understanding, our teaching, our preaching of the gospel does not expose us to someone saying, chapter 6, verse 1, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Then I want to suggest to you it's not the true gospel that we're preaching. And I want you to bear with me as I like, explain this. First, if Paul preached or told, or anyone for that matter, preached or said, if you want to be a Christian and you want to go to heaven and be forgiven, you you have to stop committing sins and you have got to take up good works and if you do so regularly and consistently enough proving yourself in those things then you can become a christian you have proven that you're you've earned your way to god that you've earned your way to be reconciled to god because you did the equivalent by your moral efforts of you know sending a note to god with flowers by the way god we're good now i made us right and God, um, I did everything that is needed to get me right with you. Instead of God sending you a note and saying, hey, I sent you my son. I love you. Because of him, everything's going to be great between us forever. P.S. Have a nice day. Think of it this way. Romans 5.10 says, while we were God's enemies, we, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. If you had a moral gospel, if you would, you'd change that. That, you know, God, I've stopped being your enemy because I've improved morally. i made up with you, God. I've turned over a new leaf. I've tried harder. I did better. And God said, that a girl, that a boy, you're finally good enough for me. Come over to my house. Let's be friends forever because you did it. And here's the point. When we try to use our good works as any basis of our salvation or the basis to maintain our salvation, obviously, if Paul preached that kind of message, no one would have asked him the question, verse 1, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Because the whole emphasis would be on what? If you go on sinning, you're certain to be damned, lost, and only if you could stop sinning, then you could save yourself. And of course, how much sin could depend really on the region that you live in and the people you hang with. So again, no one would ask that question in verse 1, if our works mattered in any way in our salvation. And you have to apply the same idea to the person who says, okay, you're saved by the church. You're saved by participating in the sacraments of the church or all the religious rituals given by the church. No one would ask you the question, if you believed all those things, no one would ask you the question, shall I go on sinning that grace may increase? The whole emphasis would be on your rituals and and the mechanics of religion and what you are doing and what you are not doing and how much of what you're doing which is good, is it going to be enough? So again, no one would ask the verse one question, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Because all those other things are no gospel at all. The misunderstandings and the questions and the condemnations about grace only come with the pure gospel. So there's a real sense when you preach the doctrine of justification, as Paul has done, it is dangerous. It's dangerous to preach, to teach, and to tell others to rely on grace for your entire Christian existence. Because it can be misunderstood. I mean, you know, the people will say, there's a person who doesn't care about living a good life. They're not serious enough about good works. And they don't think good works even matter. There's a teacher, there's a preacher, there's a Paul who doesn't teach enough about morality and how to be a good dad and how to be a good mom and how to be a good kid and how to be a good husband and how to be a good wife and how to be a good servant. Because they're saying, if the law increases sin and good works don't matter, then, then they are saying, sin away. No wonder the world is in the mess that it is in. That's the thing that they say. But tell me when the world has not been a mess. Tell me. Tell me when the world has been great. And loved ones, if that charge, the grace charge, doesn't come to us, it is because more than likely we're not really preaching or teaching or telling The one true gospel that Paul gives us in the pages of Romans. Listen carefully. So during the the Protestant Reformation, the charge would come from the church in Rome that the Protestant reformers, let me just quote to you what they would say. These men have changed the doctrine of justification in order to justify their own marriages and, and feed their own lust. Listen carefully. To shepherd a flock under the Church of Rome's flag, pre-Reformation, 16th century, you could not be married. And so what they did, when when the Protestant Reformation came and and grace alone was just poured out to the world, they go right for the real abase stuff. You dirty little boys, right? You want to change the gospel because you just want to feed your lust. Sin away. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's Ezekiel Bolivar. Did you ever heard of that? Ezekiel Bolivar? This is, what it, this is what it means. So it's classic. Ezekiel Bolivar was a made-up character by C.S. Lewis who could win any mar- argument every time. So if he disagreed with somebody or thought they were wrong in, in the argument they were having, he would immediately attack their character. Right, Go right for the, you know, the mean stuff. In other words, Paul likes justification because Paul likes to sin away. Paul preaches grace because he's hiding some sins. He's a massive sinner, which, by the way, he would say. But anyway, the Protestant reformers, they like faith alone salvation because they're filled with lust. And they, they like girls, so they don't care enough about morality. You see? That was the charge last week. Remember, antinomianism, no law. So you see, test your gospel. And you will see when you preach and teach and tell others Paul's gospel, the gospel of God, the grace of God just just laid out there, you're going to expose yourself to the charge of verse 1 and to misunderstandings. It has happened to me. It still happens to me. You see, God justifying the wicked, the ungodly, his enemies, The dead, that's Romans 5, 6, and 10, is staggering to the natural man. That we are accepted always, not because of what we do, but in spite of what we do, entirely of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That is shocking. But that is the gospel. To know, I say this at least once a month, to know that on, on my best day, I am never beyond the need of God's grace And on my worst day, I am never beyond the reach of God's grace. That changes everything. That's point number one, test your gospel. Point number two, answer the question. And there it is, you see. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, here's Paul's answer, verse two. By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So the gospel brings dynamic change. Deep heart in change. And Paul's going to answer that question five different times. We're only going to get to one this morning. But look at, look at your Bible. He answers the question in verse 2. He's going to answer the same question in verse 6. He's going to answer the same question in verse 7. He's going to answer the same question in verse 8. He's going to answer the same question in verse 11. In other words, this is a biggie. Nothing is more important to answer this question. Okay, What does Paul mean when he writes... We die to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Now, this is going to help us answer that question. When Paul writes that in verse 2, in the Greek it's written in the aorist tense. And this is what it means. This is a one-time event. Died to sin only happens once, but it will last forever. One definitive act of which belongs in the past, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, means that what Paul says here is always going to be true in the present and in the future, world without end. Okay, so what does he mean when he says that in verse two? First, it does not mean we are dead to sin in the sense that if you know, we were really true, blue, mature Christians, we would no longer want to sin, so that sin no longer has an influence over us. Okay, so if you're mature and you're serious, we will no longer want to sin. No, because you see, if that was true, again, look at your Bible. Paul would not have wrote wrote Romans 6, verses 12 through 14, telling us not to let sin reign in our bodies. In other words, if a Christian is dead to sin, no longer wanting to sin, then why would Paul have have to urge us to not let sin reign in our bodies? Also in chapter 7... Halfway into it, Paul is going to tell on himself, and he's going to say, I still have sinful desires. Okay, so died to sin does not mean, you know, if you're a true blue Christian, if you're walking in the spirit, whatever the things that people say, then you'll no longer want to sin. Secondly, died to sin does not mean we are slowly moving away from sin so that sin is weakening us because the term Paul used is, is died, as in dead, okay? Not dying as in almost dead, but dead. By the way, the Greek word there is Thanos. And if you're a Marvel fan, he was the bad guy in the movie. Thanos means death, and in the movie, Thanos did a whole lot of bad things. (laughs) Again, it's in the aorist tense, which refers to a once and for all decisive act, not some kind of gradual process. Meaning Paul is not referring to some continual process of dying to sin, not here. Third, died to sin does not mean we have renounced sin. So, you know, we say at some moment, maybe at our baptism, we disavow sinful behavior or we make promises in some kind of public forum. Now, bear with me on this one. Verses 3 to 5 of chapter 6 will explain that this death is the result of our union with Jesus Christ, not us renouncing sin meaning died to sin, is the result of something done to us, not as the result of something done by us or promised by us. Now, we can renounce sin, sure. It's just that we need to be honest enough in the fullest sense, we can't keep our word. We just need to remember that. Fourth, died to sin is not Paul teaching that we ought to be dead in sin. Okay, so he's not saying we are dead to it. So if you're a Christian and you're worthy of the name and you really understood, you'd be so serious that you ought to be dead to sin. So you have to walk in that moment of ought to hear being dead in sin. But there's no ought to here. He is telling us something which he's already, which he's already said is true of us. Okay, so so. In these bodies of ours, as long as we are in this body, we will want to sin. Sin's desire will be in us. We can renounce sin, but we just need to be honest enough to know that we can't keep our word. So knowing all of that, what does verse 2, we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer means? Well, if you allow the context to determine your answer, then the answer is found in chapter 5, verse 21. You see it there? Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, we Christians have died to the reign of sin. So this is... This is We've died to the guilt of sin. We've died from the condemnation of our sin. That's all been removed. We've died to the rule and reign of sin. So this is what Paul is doing. He's making two contrasts, two different regions, two different realms. The reign of sin and the reign of grace. Here is the reign of sin. It brings death. It brings condemnation. It brings God's wrath. And it brings God's judgment. And that is not our realm anymore as Christians. The reign of grace says, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. That's our realm, our wheelhouse. This is where we live. Now, he's been working it out already. Look at chapter 5, verse 16, please. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. That is the reign of sin. Under that, there is condemnation. Outside of Christ, no condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. That is the reign of grace. Or chapter 5, verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. That is the reign of, of sin. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. That is the reign of grace. You see, that's what Paul means when he says here, we died to sin that we have died to the reign of sin, its rule, its power, its realm. And now we are under the reign of grace, the the influence, the superabundant dynamic of grace, which is what the Christian is under. So Paul says, we are in that realm, not in sin's realm. How can we live then in that sin realm any longer? And here's the point. Knowing all that, who in their right mind would say something like, go on sinning to, so grace may increase? God forbid. Isn't that verse 1? That would be utter foolishness. It would be like me saying, I do at my wedding to do different women. How? You can't do that. You can't. Who in their right mind, knowing the gospel fully, would say something like, what well, you're saying, Paul, go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul would say, God forbid. That is utter foolishness. Therefore, a Christian is so much more than a person with their sins forgiven who, you know, has decided to live a better life. They are far more. They live under the reign of grace. And under the reign of grace is superabundant power. The results are guaranteed. Our salvation will be completed. Our sanctification will happen. It's going to end in glorification because it is all the work of God in the gospel. And you see, if we see ourselves as the gospel sees us, and if we see our sin as the gospel explains it to us, the only remedy that we have is the work of God and the person of Jesus Christ and not some technique to live a better life. I want you to think with me. The reign of sin brought death. Okay, and it brought sin. We're headed to death, and we're all sinners. However, Paul says the reign of grace is so much more powerful. In other words, where sin abounds, okay, sin, death, condemnation, wrath, judgment, where all that abounds, all the result of the reign of sin, grace much more abounds. Okay, so how much more? Well, sin for the Christian, its power, its penalty, is, has, and will be defeated because of grace. And death, for the Christian, is nothing more than falling asleep, and we're going to wake up in the arms of Jesus Christ because of the reign of grace. Wrath of God, that's been dealt with. God's not angry at us ever, and will never be angry with us. Condemnation from God, not even on his radar And judgment on sin for the Christian is no longer to be feared. Who can bring any charge against you? Paul says in Romans 8, Christ Jesus has justified you. Indeed, in justification, what is true of Jesus Christ is true of you. And the point then, the point of grace is to destroy sin and to forgive sin, not to give us a green light to sin. You understand? I'll say that again. The point of grace abounding is to destroy sin and forgive sin, but not to give us a green light to sin. So to ask the question, okay, verse one, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? To make those accusations against somebody, or say, you know, or to say eternal security, that will just let people sin all they want. If we think those things and are asking those questions, we need a bigger and better understanding of the gospel. Hmm. And if you do those things, then you don't really understand the gospel. And let me just say this. When the main message of the church to people about sin, is stop, and here's how. Oh, it didn't work? Well, you're not trying hard enough, and you're not being serious enough. If that's the main message, all that does is bring death. 520, halfway apart of Romans 7. All that will do is bring death. (laughs) Which is why Paul takes the time to explain And to re-explain the last part of chapter 5, and all of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7, as we said. Here's the point. To give great big bowlfuls of law and great big bowlfuls of morality won't change a person. It actually works in the opposite direction. However, the death of Christ, chapter 6, verses 3-7, through and the resurrection of Christ, chapter 6, verses 7-11, That'll do because it will tell us God has already done everything necessary to make us right with his son and to maintain that righteousness forever and ever, world without end. Okay, first point, test your gospel. Okay, when they say too much grace, you know you're on the right track. Second point, answer the question. Okay, sin no longer reigns over us, but it still has power over us. So we better understand that a lifelong battle with indwelling sin is to be expected. It is not immature to, to deal with sin, to desire sin. That's just part of our makeup. Finally, work it out in practice. So, so if we begin at the beginning, the moment we become a Christian, we are no longer under the reign or the ruling power of sin. Paul says we no longer have to obey sin because it no longer reigns over us. Look at verse 14, chapter 6, verse 14. Sin does not have mastery over us because we are under grace. Okay, so grace reigns, and grace reigning means sin does not master us. In other words, st- sin still has power, no matter your age and stage as a Christian, but the power, uh, ha- the power the no longer has the power to overpower you now. As it did before. Okay. So even though a lifelong battle with sin is to be expected. Sin does not have power over you. What, what you could not see as sin before Christ. You can now see because you're in Christ. Therefore now we resist things that we used to not resist. And we rebel against things that we used to not rebel against. And that does not mean that sin is no longer within us or that it has no more influence or power within us, nor does it mean, you know, if we just prayed more and just read our Bibles more and we kind of manned up or, 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 or womaned up and stopped being so fleshly, then we can kill sin's influence once for all. No, that would be a lie. But it does mean that any of those things would be disingenuous and irrational to believe those things. So it means that sin no longer can dictate, can command you that you are not under sin's reign, chapter 6, verse 7. Anyone who has died has been freed from sin. In other words, although we may obey sin, and although the Bible predicts and plans for us to uh, obey sin, giving plenty of grace to forgive sin, the fact still remains that we no longer have to obey sin. So we will never get to the end of of mortifying or killing sin inside of us because sin will always be in our hearts. It will always be plowing around and plundering even though though it does not have power or it's not the dominating force. Sin is in our hearts constantly expressing itself, always in disorderly desires. That will be part of our makeup forever and ever as long as we are in this flesh. So, sin is like a, like a bindweed, you know, morning glory, I think you call them. It's always going to be there. It's impossible to get rid of in our flesh. And it always extends itself into the heart in this case. So, listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. The moment we become Christians, we are dead, completely dead to the reign of sin. We are out of sin's territory altogether altogether. But now I imagine someone putting forward an objection. How can you possibly say such a thing? We still sin. We still feel the power of temptation and the power of sin. How, therefore, can you say honestly that you're dead to the rule and to the reign and to the whole dominion of sin? Here's the answer we must differentiate between what is true of our position as a fact and our experience. What he says then is that every person in the world, Paul says, every person in the world at this minute is either under the rule and reign of sin or under the rule and reign of grace. It's either one or the other. He cannot have his foot in each position. Why? Because he's either in Adam or in Christ. So let's just work this out in the the practice of our life. The signs of of life is that when we sin, and we will, it grieves us. Every sin. You know, not just the the ones that we think are big, but every sin grieves us. And as we move along, we have a growing understanding of our sins. Which means our sin list grows larger. And so we cannot live in sin because it's a distasteful process taste in our mouth, and, and it is a disease, and we want to get away from it. If you like, sin drives us to live in the unfinished basement, terrible example, but we're, sin wants us to live in that unfinished basement, but God says, you were meant to, to live on the first floor, and you know that, and part of grace reigning says, I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to keep getting you up those stairs, because sin's not your home, The basement isn't your home. The first floor is. Which means part of grace reigning is repentance. Because because repentance then becomes for the Christian a continual need. And not just kind of like a one and done prayer. Paul says we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer and remain unrepentant about our sin? And for me, this this is my personal experience. The older I get the more I find the need to repent of my sins. Not less, but more. Because the gospel gives us knowledge and power to change our character and to change our behavior. But it's honest enough to tell me who I will be until that final day of glorification comes. So the law can't change me. Moral teachings on their own can't change me. They only make it worse. Just the gospel. We have a whole lot more to learn about Romans 6 and 7. Lord willing, we get to do that next time. Thanks for your attention and let's, let's pray together. And My prayer is going to come from 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. May God himself. The God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. And if you could, just make your way quickly to the parking lot. We would appreciate that.